Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The way that democracy usually dies is that popular support is used to justify mass coercion. That's what's happening now. I'm Alice Denby, Deputy Editor of CapEx, and for my first episode of Free Exchange, I thought I should make life easy for myself by interviewing someone widely regarded as the smartest man in Britain. Lord Sumption, former Supreme Court judge, medieval historian and wreath lecturer, is also an eloquent and authoritative critic of the government's handling of the pandemic. Not only does he dispute the scientific evidence, he said the lockdown is legally and constitutionally unjustified. We spoke via Zoom as England was put back under a work-from-home order, and I started by asking him how he felt about Boris depriving him of his liberty for a second time. Lord Thompson, thank you very much for joining me on Free Exchange, the CapEx podcast. So you've obviously, uh, in your Cambridge University lecture and in many other media outlets, criticised both the ethics and the efficacy of the government's approach to the pandemic. You've warned about the death of freedom. You've spoken about a police state. Um, I was wondering how you feel about being back in lockdown today. (laughs) Well, it's, uh, it's not too bad for me because I have largely intellectual activities. I have a large house with a nice garden. And uh, so, you know, I don't suffer a great deal from lockdowns. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I don't live alone. Uh, but uh, for many other people, uh, it's an extremely painful, disorienting uh, and lonely process, uh, as well as, in many cases, uh, unbelievably disruptive of uh, finances and of pretty well every other aspect of my life. You've been particularly critical, I think, about the process by which the government's taken these measures, particularly the failure to consult Parliament. Um, But on this occasion, I mean, the government has laid out its forecasts on which it's taken this decision. There was a vote in Parliament. These measures apparently enjoy popular support. Isn't that a proper process to follow in a democracy? Uh, the latest example is a lot more satisfactory than the, uh, the, the, the earlier one. Uh, the, uh, my view is that the government does not have the power to do what it has done under the statute which it's used, namely the Public Health Act. It, it would have that power under the Civil Contingencies Act. 
What the government has done with the latest lockdown that didn't do before is, first of all, it has laid its uh, regulations before the House of Commons, before they come into force, uh, instead of afterwards. The first lockdown was not put before Parliament until seven weeks after it was came into effect. Uh, secondly, uh, it has um, given them a, a relatively short duration uh, of 28 days. Uh, the Civil Contingencies Act requires um, any measures taken under that act to be resubmitted and reapproved every 30 days. So they have now started acting as if the Civil Contingencies Act applies, although uh, uh, that's not the statute that they've used. That's undoubtedly a considerable improvement. Uh, as to uh, the popular support for this, I agree that there is popular support for it, although the um, uh, weight of popular support has tended to decline. Uh, but uh, I am not uh, impressed by the suggestion that that is uh, sufficient to make this a democratic process. Uh, the way that democracy usually dies is that popular support is used to justify mass coercion. That's what's happening now. What about the um, the data suggesting that the NHS is likely to be overwhelmed without serious action? The head of the NHS, Simon Stevens, said that we've got 22 hospitals worth of COVID patients and that if we didn't take action, we'd see patients being turned away at the door of A&E, doctors having to decide who well, lives and dies. I agree that, that if it's justified on the facts, uh, is uh, a serious argument. Uh, I happen to think uh, that the, uh, the, the amount of damage it's done uh, is so great uh, that that is not a sufficiently strong argument. But that I accept as a value judgment. However, before one accepts uh, Stevens's assessment, I think one needs to see rather more data than the government is willing to produce at this stage. Uh, and the data that they produced uh, in, uh, at the press conference last Saturday contained uh, a number of charts uh, that are frankly manipulative and disgraceful. The criticisms made in the House of Commons by Theresa May of this exercise in the debate on Wednesday were entirely justified uh, and indeed even Chris Whitty has now accepted that the 4,000 a day estimate should not have been put forward. Uh, there are a variety of views about the likely um, uh, future course of the disease. The government's uh, decision is justified by reference to a model ex modeling exercise of a kind which has consistently been shown to overstate uh, the likely growth rate of the disease uh, ever since March. It represents in many respects an abuse of the modeling process because models uh, are essentially based on assumptions. They provide a framework for decision-making, but they are not forecasts and they are not evidence, as the authors of certainly the Imperial College models have frequently pointed out. Uh, the um, evidence which is produced by other reputable sources, notably the King's College London um, uh, uh, symptom tracking app, run by Tim Spector and his team, uh, suggests that uh, the uh, risk uh, 
of an increase in uh, infections uh, and hospitalizations of anything like the level shown in the government's models is extremely unlikely. Do you think even if you were more convinced by the data that you would still object to lockdown? I would, but I uh, would accept that that is essentially um, a, a value judgment on my part, uh, which is not susceptible to proof. It depends on if you're going to compare oranges and Thursdays, you clearly need a uh, 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 you, you, you clearly can't do it mathematically. Um, uh, I think that one of the problems is that the government has never uh, uh, produced anything resembling uh, a risk assessment uh, or a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, in July, uh, a House of Commons committee, um, uh, having heard evidence from ministers, criticised the fact that when the lockdown was originally imposed in March, nothing remotely like a cost-benefit analysis was carried out. Um, that seems still to be the position. Certainly, uh, one must assume that if, since the government wishes to persuade us uh, that they are doing the right thing, if they had anything like a cost-benefit analysis, they would have told us um, what it said. Uh, the... Um, uh, regulations have consistently contained a formulaic statement from Mr. Hancock to the effect that uh, these measures are proportionate. Uh, without a cost-benefit analysis or an impact assessment, I do not see how he can possibly know whether they are proportionate. What seems to be happening, uh, this is certainly what one deduces from Chris Whitty's evidence in the relevant parliamentary committee a few days ago, what he said was that these are dangerous measures um, justified uh, by, the, um, uh, by the threat to public health. My understanding of the government's position is that it considers that there is no amount of social or economic damage that it is not worth putting up with uh, uh, to avoid a significant number of deaths. Uh, I do not accept that. It seems to me that deaths from significant epidemics have been a feature of human existence for millennia, uh, that this particular uh, epidemic, although serious, is not by any means the most serious that we have had to deal with over the years. Uh, and it seems to me that we have to accept uh, that there will be deaths, not least because it is far from straightforward how one is in the long term going to avoid them. Lockdowns do not reduce deaths except while they're in force. Uh, when they are lifted, uh, what, what happens is that the infections and associated deaths that you have avoided are simply deferred into a future period. Now, uh, this is not controversial. It was a point made forcefully on two occasions before the first lockdown by the Imperial College modeling team itself. Uh, and it is indeed what we are experiencing now. We are experiencing the infections and the deaths that were not prevented in the long term by the first lockdown. I think what you're saying is that protecting our freedom is more important than preventing people from dying of this disease. Is that well, a fair characterization? I wouldn't put it as absolutely as that, because I don't believe that freedom is an absolute value. 
I think it is a very high value because I think that it is the foundation of human happiness and human creativity. Um, uh, therefore, a very strong case is needed to justify curtailing it. Uh, I do not see that that strong case has been made out. Uh, I do accept that there will be deaths. Uh, I think that there will be deaths, whatever we do, lockdown or no lockdown, uh, and that the government's uh, attempt to suppress the disease uh, is simply unrealistic. I don't believe that they themselves consider that it can be suppressed. Uh, they have accepted ever since the papers that they published on the 13th of May that we were likely to have to live with COVID-19 long term. What we therefore need are steps for managing living with the disease uh, and not uh, steps uh, to take to, to suppress it entirely, which would be bound to fail. Um, we need to learn to live with this disease and we will need to learn to live with it even if there is a vaccine because the consensus of immunologists at the moment is that this is not going to be a vaccine like measles or smallpox, uh, which gives you a lifetime immunity. It's going to be a vaccine much more, much more like the flu vaccine, which is not uh, invariably successful. It doesn't work with everybody and which gives uh, uh, immunity only for a limited period of time and is also subject to being undermined by mutations uh, in, the, in the flu virus. So uh, that being, this is not my own uh, research. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm simply citing what appears to be uh, the consensus uh, of uh, most immunologists at the moment. I have yet to see a single one who thinks that this is going to be a magic bullet. Now, uh, flu is not anything like as significant a killer as COVID-19, but it's still a significant killer. In a bad year, it can kill between 30 and 50,000 people uh, uh, over a winter in the United Kingdom. We have had to learn to live with, uh, with flu, notwithstanding that there is a vaccine. Uh, we will have to do the same about COVID-19. What about the argument that this lockdown could possibly suppress the transmission of the virus enough to protect the NHS until there is a vaccine? Well, that, uh, well, that returns to the, uh, a variant of the issue that we discussed a few minutes ago. I think that to uh, try to suppress a disease until they are, there is a vaccine uh, is an extremely dangerous policy. We do not know uh, how long it will take for there to be a vaccine. We do not know how long it will take uh, to administer it to substantially the whole population. We do not know how many members of the population would be prepared to use the vaccine. I think they would be sensible to do so. Um, it seems to me that uh, locking people down uh, indefinitely uh, is simply uh, a, an inhumane uh, uh, exceptionally damaging uh, process. Uh, moreover, uh, it, it carries with it a spectacular injustice uh, because um, the, the burden of these countermeasures is being borne by a sector of the population that is virtually invulnerable to the disease, namely the young and healthy. Uh, and uh, we are witnessing a situation in which bright engineering graduates and talented musicians are having to abandon their skills to stack shelves in supermarkets. Uh, 
The consequences of that will be with them for long after the rest of us have forgotten all about COVID-19. There is moreover, I think, an incoherence at the start, at the heart of government policy making on this. We have known from the outset of this epidemic that it is selective. It's not like Spanish flu, which attacked people in their 20s and 30s, hitherto in good health. It attacks the old, over 70, uh, and those with identifiable clinical vulnerabilities. We know what those vulnerabilities are. Apart from anything else, the government has itself defined them in Regulation 4 of its latest set of regulations. Um, it, it seems to me quite extraordinary that the government is not willing to contemplate a selective system under which those who are actually vulnerable to becoming seriously ill are protected, uh, and the rest of us, the rest of them, I'm over 70, um, uh, uh, can be allowed uh, to earn their living uh, and to live fulfilled lives. The idea that one should be locking down uh, the entire population in order to, uh, to save uh, people from having, people who are vulnerable from having to take sensible precautions for their own safety seems to me to be truly extraordinary. We have had absolutely no explanation of this. We are told in an airy fashion, well, it's impractical. I fail to see why. Uh, I am not suggesting uh, that there should be statutory uh, applicable only to, for example, people over 70. What I am saying uh, is that the public should be treated like adults. They should be allowed to take sensible precautions of their own devising, dependent on their own circumstances and those around them. That is a very much more efficient um, uh, way of dealing with this uh, than the way the government has so far set about it. We are spending hundreds of billions of pounds uh, in compensating people who are unlikely to get to be uh, become seriously ill with COVID-19. That is a scandalous waste of money. We ought to be directing resources to those parts of the population, mainly the vulnerable and the old, who actually need it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I mean, I, I agree with what you say that it certainly seems like it wouldn't be impractical for older and more vulnerable people to shield themselves. But doesn't that just flip the generational impact away from young people and back onto older people? Is, is that necessarily fairer? It, yes, of course it is. But the, the older people are in a different position. They are vulnerable to, uh, uh, to becoming seriously ill or dying as a result of COVID-19, whereas the younger ones are not. Uh, I mean, you have to accept the fact that we have the disease, but the characteristics it's got. Um, it seems ridiculous to say, well, it's unfair if only people who are at risk are sheltered. We therefore have to shelter people who are not at risk. That seems to me to be transparently absurd. I feel like um, you cannot really envision any scenario where you would support a lockdown. Um, no, that's not true. I can envisage such a scenario. Um, if we were dealing uh, with a bubonic plague, to take an extreme example, with a mortality rate of 80%, of course it might be sensible uh, to do that. If we were dealing with Spanish flu, uh, which attacked people who were economically active in their 20s and 30s and hitherto healthy and therefore not capable of being identified in advance as particularly, particularly vulnerable, uh, I don't know whether I would accept that that was a sufficient occasion for doing this, but it would certainly be a stronger case than it is with COVID-19. I think one of the key vulnerabilities that we have to this pandemic is the capacity of our health service, um, and particularly in Britain with the regard with in which the NHS is held. Um, do you not think that if there was a scenario where the NHS were to be completely overwhelmed and people were being turned away from hospital doors, that that would fundamentally undermine trust in the government, which in itself would damage our democracy, perhaps even more than the lockdown does? Well, uh, first of all, we've got to compare that with the deaths caused by the lockdown itself. The first lockdown caused large numbers of deaths, uh, notably from cancer, from um, because of the withdrawal of treatment for anything other than COVID-19. The government has to some extent learnt the lesson of that, uh, and it's the way that it's dealt with the second lockdown. Um, uh, but uh, dementia, which is the number one cause uh, of death in the United Kingdom at, at the moment, uh, and has been actually for some time, uh, is a, a, a source of, is a, of mortality, uh, which is enormously aggravated by the lockdown measures. Um, it seems to me you can't just look uh, at, um, uh, at deaths from COVID-19, which is way down the list of causes of death in the United Kingdom. Now, what is true, and this may relate to the point that you make in your question, uh, is that deaths with COVID-19 are more visible, more immediate, more dramatic. So uh, if you are saying, well, politicians are liable to be criticized uh, from death, uh, for deaths with COVID-19 when they wouldn't necessarily be for deaths with dementia, I would agree with you. But uh, that is actually the main source of the problem. Politicians uh, frequently uh, find it difficult to distinguish uh, between uh, things that will be they will be criticized for not doing and things that are in the public interest. Their own interest is not to be criticized. Public interest is different. I agree that it sometimes takes courage 
uh, to do the right thing. Uh, but uh, I am not impressed by an argument that we should bless what politicians do because they lack the courage to do anything different. Yeah, and one of the striking quotes from your Cambridge lecture was that in the long run, the principles on which we are governed matter more than the way we deal with any particular crisis. But I think what I'm trying to tease out is that the handling of this crisis could in itself undermine the principles on which we're governed. I think particularly people would be appalled if the NHS was allowed to fail. I don't think that's very likely. I certainly think that it may undermine the reputation of successive governments who have, for example, failed to build up uh, the NHS's uh, intensive care capacity. I mean, it is a lamentable fact uh, that we have one of the lowest intensive care capacities in Europe. Now, you're quite right to say that the National Health Service is held in high regard, but the fact is that the National Health Service has been underfunded for many years, uh, uh, and uh, that well-known sources of potential difficulty have been ignored. The danger of a major pandemic has been top of the National Risk Register since it was first published in 2008. One would have expected uh, a build-up of the intensive care capacity of the NHS to deal with it, of a kind which has occurred in other countries, notably in Germany, but to some extent Germany has done better than anyone else. But it's happened to a greater extent uh, in other countries of Europe than it has in the United Kingdom. And that is a lamentable state of affairs. So you may be right in saying uh, that governments would be discredited if people had to be turned away from hospital. That is not the same thing uh, as saying that the whole uh, democratic process um, uh, is discredited. And I think this brings us a bit uh, more into the kind of wider context in this this is happening. I'd like to talk a bit about some of the points you touched on in your wreath lectures. I mean, back, back then in 2019, before the pandemic, you were warning, I think, about a sort of increasingly authoritarian style of government. Um, do what you is think- more, I was warning about the danger that this would arise uh, from a combination uh, of demands for security and fear. And uh, I could not have expected uh, that prediction to be so completely vindicated in such a short time. Do you think it's the government's job to eliminate or mitigate all risk from our lives? No, of course I don't. Um, I think that in each case, you have to work out uh, what the cost of doing so is. Um, in general, uh, the cost of mitigating uh, risk uh, is a reduction of liberty. And to those who believe that liberty is a, an important value, albeit not an absolute one, that is a very serious problem. Um, in general, the way that risk is reduced is by preventing people from doing risky things, i.e. restricting the number of things which they are able to do. Um, I cited uh, a famous example of this um, from the case law in my reef lectures. It was a case about uh, a young man who threw himself headfirst into a a very shallow pond at a famous beauty spot uh, and was paralyzed for life. Uh, the Court of Appeal had held uh, that the local authorities should have prevented people, all people, from visiting the site at all in case some of them threw themselves headfirst into the water and injured themselves 
uh, in spite of the notices warning them of the danger. Um, now, uh, when that case reached the House of Lords, uh, the House of Lords said, well, um, you have to realize that the measures necessary to take to, to, to stop people doing this uh, have the effect of preventing everybody else from visiting a beauty spot and behaving sensibly. This is the dilemma that we have every time that we have a risk assessment to carry out. The classic example, as I also pointed out in my reef lectures, is motoring. We know that if we were to restore the Locomotive Act and limit the speed of cars in cities to two miles an hour, hundreds of lives would be saved. Why don't we do it? We don't do it uh, because we would prefer to be allowed to travel around uh, in comfort and speed. I think when you made your wreath lectures back in 2019, we were sort of at the height of um, Brexit shenanigans. I wonder if you think that that has played into the government's handling of this pandemic. You, you've said this government is characterised by a, a disregard for uh, legal processes. I wonder if you think Brexit and everything preceding that enabled or somehow encouraged this particular government act. Yes, I do think that they are closely related um, because I think that uh, in the course of, in particular, the last year uh, of the political crisis over Brexit, which effectively ended with the general election of December 2019, um, the government acquired a contempt for, in particular, parliamentary institutions and for the courts, so far as the courts sought to defend constitutional powers of parliamentary institutions. Uh, it preferred a model under which the government, so to speak, speaks directly to the people uh, instead of having to go by a parliament. The problem about that view is that the people have no institutional method uh, of holding governments to account otherwise by a parliament. Uh, so that speaking directly to the people essentially means uh, that you aren't accountable at all. Now, not being accountable at all is, of course, a welcome prospect for uh, many politicians. But I don't see why the rest of us should admire that ambition. Do you think the government's deliberately tried to avoid parliamentary scrutiny of its handling of the pandemic? Well, I've no doubt about it. I mean, there have been a number of very striking illustrations of this, not to speak of the Speaker of the House of Commons' criticism uh, that ministers are not making announcements in the House of Commons and are simply sidelining it. But the most remarkable demonstration of that was the circumstances in which the original lockdown was imposed. Um, because what happened, as you may recall, was that on the 23rd of March, the Prime Minister purported to give an immediate instruction that everyone was to lock down. This was said to be so urgent that Parliament couldn't be consulted in advance. Nevertheless, it took them three days until the 26th of March to produce their regulations. Now, why, if it was so urgent, did it take them three days to do it? The answer is perfectly simple. However urgent it was, they waited until Parliament was in recess on the 25th of March and published their regulations the next day. Now, that is only explicable as a desire to avoid any kind of debate in Parliament about the measures that were being adopted. How do you think Britain's response 
compares to other democracies? Do you think there's something peculiar about us having an unwritten constitution that makes us vulnerable to a government who wishes to behave in this way and avoid parliamentary scrutiny in this way? No, I don't. Um, it seems to me that uh, a written constitution would simply not help. Uh, any written constitution, however elaborate, however formal, and however uh, scrupulously enforced by the courts, depends for its workability on a shared set of political values. Um, you can see how important a shared set of political values is when you look at a country like the United States, which has uh, a written constitution uh, and perhaps the most uh, legal constitution in the world, uh, nonetheless, uh, when you have a president who is determined uh, to reject all the shared political culture that made it work for decades, uh, you can see what happens. Uh, the thing just stopped working properly. There are any number of ways in which governments can subvert democracy if they are determined to do that. And the world is full of nominal democracies uh, whose substance has been eviscerated by governments simply uh, avoiding the restrictions uh, which convention previously imposed. Now, Britain is particularly vulnerable to this process because so much of its constitution is dependent on convention. But I think it's a mistake to suggest that this is a peculiarity of countries without a written constitution. Uh, it is true of all countries. Uh, as we're speaking, it looks like America might be turning its back on um, the era you just characterised. Um, oh, do, do you think that there's a way forward for Britain? Do you think freedom will die or can we claw it back? I don't know. Uh, I think that there is uh, a, what the pandemic has very clearly shown uh, is that if you frighten people enough, they will submit even to the most intrusive and despotic arrangements. Um, and uh, the government having discovered this is not going to forget it in a hurry. Uh, we have to bear in mind that even before the pandemic came along to demonstrate this wretched fact about most human societies, um, there was a disenchantment with democratic institutions, especially among the young. The successive annual uh, surveys of political engagement uh, published by the Hanside Society have been a very striking demonstration uh, of this. Um, the one that was published in April 2019, which I mentioned in my wreath lectures, uh, suggests that uh, a majority, I the figure was 54% of the British population, would welcome government uh, by a strong man. And most of those uh, would say that this Putin-like figure should not be uh, over-concerned with such political impedimenta as parliaments and courts. Now, um, to my mind, that is very dangerous. There is a widespread view that strong men are efficient, effective, and that despotism works. People don't waste time engaging in tiresome and time-consuming discussions with quarrelsome parliamentarians and so on. 
Uh, this view uh, is rubbish, even in its own terms. Um, uh, all experience historically suggests uh, that if you uh, have a system of government uh, under which uh, ultimately it is the authorities in the hands of a tiny number of people, you have a minimum of deliberation, a minimum of discussion, a minimum of internal self-criticism. And the result of this uh, is not just despotic, it's very, very bad government. Even if you admire the measures that the government has taken, you could not possibly admire the way in which these decisions have been made. This government has given the impression, which I think is wholly justified ever since March, of having no strategy, of uh, lurching from pillar to post in response uh, to the latest crisis, of endlessly trying to put out fires without any kind of long-term plan, of continual U-turns. Uh, this is not a sensible way to manage a pandemic, even if you happen to agree, unlike me, that locking people down is a good idea. Uh, what we are witnessing is many of the classic vices of authoritarian government. Well, Thompson, I was hoping we could finish on a more positive note, but... Um... <laughs> I find it hard at the moment to think of many positive notes, <laughs> but if you can think of one, I shall be very glad to hear it. Perhaps we could look forward to Christmas. Um, Prime Minister has said, hopefully, that uh, these measures will be time limited. What, what are your plans for Christmas? I haven't got any yet. I will have to consult my family uh, and the uh, friends with whom we often celebrate Christmas. Assumption. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.